is kind of an open arena setting today. So feel free to ask questions. Um, I'm a, not an endocrinologist, and I know that a lot of folks in the room know much more about this subject than I do. So my, uh, what I feel today is I'm just introducing these concepts in a different setting, which is in the setting of an autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis. I don't have any disclosures relevant to this talk. So um, just a bit of an outline. We'll start out with a, just a review about rheumatoid arthritis. I know a lot of you uh, are probably familiar with this disease, but um, just to, to bring it into focus a little bit more. Um, and then a little bit about some of the research we've done over the last 10 years or so, looking at adipose tissue and also, uh, to a smaller extent, muscle uh, in rheumatoid arthritis patients. And I'll say we, we came to this topic not because we were interested in what it's developed in uh, over the years, but we were interested in the setting of studying cardiovascular disease in, in rheumatoid arthritis, and it really has morphed into a little bit uh, more of its own um, uh, of its own uh, quantity over time. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about ten years of, of studying um, adipose quantity, muscle quantity, and its detrimental and beneficial effects in in RA patients. So. The mantra of this talk is not, is not necessarily that adipose tissue is all bad in RA. There may be some beneficial effects, um, which makes it hard to both study and come up with uh, recommendations for what to do with our patients. Then some more uh, recent uh, studies that we've been looking at adipose inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis using adipose tissue aspirates. Um, and then we'll talk very briefly at the end about adipose tissue and other rheumatic diseases. I'd like to say we have all this worked out. We don't have it all worked out because there aren't very many people looking at this. Um, when we first started, we were pretty much the only people looking at, um, at body composition in rheumatoid arthritis. And in the last 10 years, there have been a few more people looking at this, but it's not a huge amount of, of uh, researchers. Um, so just a little bit of a review of rheumatoid arthritis. This is an autoimmune disorder. It is the most common autoimmune inflammatory arthritis and affects about one, maybe 2% of people worldwide, which means there are 3 to 4 million people or more in the United States who have this disease. Um, its peak incidence is in the fourth to sixth decade. So these are women of childbearing age, um, all the way up to um, older, middle-aged and older. And the female to male predominance is 3 to 1. Um, it's characterized primarily, so when we think about rheumatoid arthritis, we think about an inflammatory arthritis, and that involves inflammation of the synovium uh, which we'll see in just a little bit. And there are other features outside of the joints. There's systemic inflammation. There are a number of extra-articular features, so this is not a disease just of the joints. And we know that people with rheumatoid arthritis die earlier than people without rheumatoid arthritis by an average of about 15 years. Synovitis is the hallmark of this disease. It's not the sine qua non of this disease, because we see synovitis in other types of inflammatory arthritis, and it looks very similar. But the synovitis of rheumatoid arthritis is characterized by synovial hyperplasia. So normally the synovium is made up of a, of a very thin one to two cell lining of um, uh, fibroblast-like um, cells called synoviocytes. Um, but in rheumatoid arthritis, there's hyperplasia of those synoviocytes and an infiltration, <coughs> a very heavy infiltration of inflammatory cells that's characterized by macrophages, but also T cells uh, and others. And then the swelling of this disease is, is because of the synovial hyperplasia. And these joints are stiff, sometimes painful, sometimes hot to the touch. So RA again, 
is a disease that with immunopathologic features of systemic inflammation, immune activation, and autoimmunity, which in, by mechanisms that we don't understand completely, uh, lead to the phenotypic features, which the hallmark is joint destruction, cartilage destruction, and bony erosions, which we'll see in just a bit. Other symptoms which are mediated by the systemic inflammation and other immune activation events include constitutional symptoms, cardiovascular disease, which we've tried to, to study over the last 10 years as well, which includes accelerated atherosclerosis and myocardial dysfunction, interstitial lung disease, and others. And then in those phenotypic features, we've tried to place um, some understanding of what is happening with fat and muscle tissue in these patients, which has been an unrecognized extra-articular manifestation of the disease. And all of these phenotypic features lead to the outcomes that we recognize deconditioning, disability, reduced quality of life, and mortality. Pathobiology of rheumatoid arthritis is complex, not completely understood. Central to it is a macrophage with its macrophage-derived cytokines of TNF-alpha, IL-1, and IL-6. The importance of these in rheumatoid arthritis um, is manifested by the fact that we can use inhibitors of these particular cytokines as treatment for the disease. But there's a lot of other things going on at the cellular and molecular level of rheumatoid arthritis. There's an important interaction between T cells and the macrophages in, in promoting the disease. Obviously, this is a disease of, of cartilage and bone destruction, and osteoclasts are activated <coughs> in this disease. And there's autoimmunity, so B cells act both as antigen-presenting cells and also as the, as the producers of, of the autoantibodies that we see uh, in the disease. So complex disease, and when we come back to talking about um, what's going on in terms of adipose inflammation, there are a lot of parallels between this mechanism and what's happening in adipose tissue as well. Again, I just want to bring up the fact that we have a lot of medications nowadays to treat rheumatoid arthritis, and there are uh, a wide variety of, of uh, mechanisms here. They're all successful in, in treating the disease. When we talk about some of the uh, uh, relationships that we've seen with some of these medications and adipose inflammation a little bit later. Just wanted you to be mindful of the wide variety of medications we have to use to treat this disease nowadays. It's a very good time to have rheumatoid arthritis because we have so many options <laughs> to treat disease. But it's, it, we really do see people who still have disease that is um, difficult to manage and still have a lot of damage, destruction, uh, and disability because of this disease. John, can I just a sort of clinical question? Is there a hierarchy in the uh, uh, pathological signaling molecules here, or, or do people fall into different So not everybody responds the same way, so there's probably heterogeneity in the way that the molecular mechanisms act. So not everybody's going to respond to a TNF inhibitor, and some of those people respond to an IL-6 inhibitor or maybe a B-cell depleter. It's not really understood, and there's no way to predict that as of yet. Um, you think it would be a simple thing to you know, look at everybody and see if this is a TNF responder and this is an IL-6 responder. What are the molecular signatures of these people? And we don't have personalized medicine like that as of yet, maybe in the future. Part of it is because you know, the drug companies don't want us to have personalized medicine, so they don't allow us to really use the samples of the clinical trials in order to see who is the best responder and who is not. So um, this is sort of a breakdown of about 10 years of, of work in adipose tissue and 
rheumatoid arthritis in just one slide, and we'll break it down a little bit more. What we first started looking at was just trying to quantify adipose tissue quantities in, in RA patients. How were they different from people who didn't have RA because they hadn't really been studied before. First study we did was looking at DEXA scans, total body DEXA scans in RA patients, comparing them to controls. What we found was that RA patients had more adipose tissue, the lean um, uh, mass was reduced, and in general they had comparable BMIs because they, they had about as much fat that they had was higher as the lean was reduced. Later we did some studies looking at abdominal and thigh CTs, looking at um, visceral subcutaneous fat, and I'll go through um, that in more detail. And then we looked to see what was the implication of having more fat and less lean in these RA patients, and we found that it was linked to a lot of outcomes that are important. Uh, we'll look at uh, how it's related to disability and performance in just a bit. It's also insulin resistance, atherosclerosis, but protective against erosions, and I'll show you some of those data in just a bit. So when we first started looking, you all know about total body density scanning, so when we first started looking at these patients, what we expected when we saw the sarcopenic patients, um, so the low, very low lean uh, patients, was that we would see um, a picture pretty much like this. This is someone who is thin, they're frail, you can see they have joint deformity, um, they look cachexic, and they, they would look like that if you saw them in the clinic. You would say this is a frail cachexic person. But in reality, most of the patients who had who were classifiable sarcopenia in our RA group looked like this. So they had low lean, but they were also heavy, um, which was kind of unexpected. And also the distribution of the, of the fat was different um, in the RA patients, and it, and it uh, depended on what your sex was. So we uh, took 131 RA patients, we compared them with age, gender, and race match controls. We did abdominal uh, and thigh CT scans in these patients, and and quantify the amount of, of abdominal, visceral, and subcutaneous fat, as well as intramuscular fat and, and fat in the thighs. Um, and what we found was that we didn't match on BMI, but the BMI and the waist circumference of the, of the, uh, of the groups did not, was not different. Um, but there was a dramatic difference in the distribution of the, of the fat. So men with rheumatoid arthritis had 50% more visceral fat. Uh, women with rheumatoid arthritis had 75% more subcutaneous fat. Here's the breakdown. So these are uh, the women, really basically the same amounts of visceral fat, um, but higher amounts of subcutaneous fat. And then for the, the men with rheumatoid arthritis, higher amounts of visceral fat and pretty much similar subcutaneous fat. And again, this is adjusting for a lot of differences. In terms of the sarcopenia, these subjects are not and greater adipose tissue, they're not on prednisone or anything? Like Some that. of them are, but it wasn't. When we, when we looked to see if that was a determinant of this, um, I'll show you in just a bit. So the amount that they were on now, but the cumulative prednisone was a, was a big determinant. For most of these women postmenopausal? Most are postmenopausal. So in this particular study, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis was our comparison group. So everyone was 45 and over um, in this group. So yes, mostly postmenopausal. Did, did you adjust for activity? We did. I'll show you in just a bit. Um, and then so when we looked to see how these people can have the same waist circumference, they had lower amounts of, of muscle. Um, so here's an answer to a lot of the questions that we just asked. So when we looked to see what were the characteristics associated with visceral fat in, this, uh, in these RA patients, we found things that we would expect, older age, depression, lower exercise, more physical, more sedentary activity, former smoking, thyroid disease, and of course CRP because we're presuming that the fat tissue is making CRP, and I'll show you some um, studies uh, looking at that in just a bit. 
And then when we looked to see at more RA-specific um, uh, relationships, we saw there were two that were very strong. One, an autoantibody associated with rheumatoid arthritis called rheumatoid factor. About 70% of RA patients have uh, measurable rheumatoid factor. And also, how much prednisone they've been exposed to in the past. And there was really a, a very strong cutoff at 9 grams of exposure over 10 years. Now, this is self-reported exposure, um, but, uh, but it really does get 9 grams of prednisone. There's a lot of prednisone, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's not the most. And so some RA patients get a lot of prednisone. Um, and some never get any at all. So um, there really was a distinction there. So that if you had uh, lower exposure to prednisone, rheumatoid factor negative, about 80 square centimeters of visceral fat, and then double that if you were rheumatoid factor positive and had higher prednisone. So uh, we were really kind of surprised about that, um, particularly the rheumatoid factor, because other autoantibodies associated with rheumatoid arthritis, like the anti-citrullinated um, peptide antibodies, were not associated. And this was not a, a surrogate for disease severity because we saw that uh, features that were not associated with visceral fat were things like how many swollen and tender joints the patients had, whether they're being treated with biologics or other treatments, and, and RA duration. So patients with earlier RA, so disease within a year or two, we saw these same relationships as patients who had RA for 20 years or more. And so we also saw that in our DEXA study, too. We saw no difference in sarcopenia, sarcopenic obesity, overfatness uh, in the RA patients with earlier disease versus later disease. Um, and when you think about that, um, it, it's not surprising because if we think that inflammation is implicated here, it's in the early untreated state that we see the highest levels of inflammation. But also, this is when the RA patients have lower levels of physical activity because they have swollen and painful joints and they're not doing as much. Um, we treat them aggressively with glucocorticoids often earlier in the disease to calm things down. Um, but it's also true that autoimmunity is present years before RA clinical symptoms start. We know that very well. And even levels of circulating cytokines can be high in these patients before they ever have a swollen or tender joint. Um, so all of this may be at play. Um, in these early patients. And this has been looked at in, in an early uh, RA study. This is a Scandinavian study. RA patients with disease less than 12 months, they could be on treatment in this study. Um, the mean age is 60, and what they found was that even in this early stage, um, women with rheumatoid arthritis had higher BMIs, higher amounts of, uh, of truncal fat, total fat, and also lower levels of lean. In the men, the, the fat story wasn't quite as present uh, early in disease, but they did have lower so again, supporting the, the concept that these changes are happening very early. Then when we looked at the relationship between fat and lean and what patients can do, one of the most important um, aspects of, of caring for people with rheumatoid arthritis and treating them is to prevent uh, physical dysfunction. We use a, a measure called the Health Assessment Questionnaire Disability Index. Um, to measure uh, dysfunction is very commonly used. Um, and what the concept is, is that the things that keep RA patients from doing the things they need to do, getting in the back tub and taking a bath or doing chores, um, taking care of their families, a lot of that is mediated by how many swollen or tender joints they have and how much damage and disability they have in their joints. And the concept that how fat you are or how much lean you have lost 
um, contributes to that was not uh, a, a well-recognized contributor. And what we found, we were actually quite surprised, this is from our DEXA study, that the patients who have the highest amount of lean and the lowest amount of fat, no matter how many swollen and tender joints they had and no matter how much damage they had in their joints, they reported very little disability. And the patients who had the most fat and the lowest amount of lean reported the highest amounts of disability. So the, the body composition contribution to what these patients could do was as important, if not a little more important, um, than how many swollen or tender joints and how much damage they had to their, their joints. And that's encouraging because we can treat swollen and tender joints. We can potentially modify body composition. We can't make an erosion go back to the having no erosion. We can't put cartilage back on bone. So potentially introduces a modifiable, um, uh, a modifiable target in these patients. Now we looked at muscle. We, um, we actually found that in addition to just the amount of muscle, that the density of the muscle was very important. That's not surprising, I'm sure, to this group. Muscle density is, is often determined by both intercalated adipose uh, tissue as well as intramycellular adipose or fat. Um, and so what we found is that the muscle density was actually a mo more potent indicator of physical functioning than even the muscle area. So if we had the highest muscle density, uh, reported the lowest amount of physical dysfunction, then we did a, a physical performance battery uh, of tests on them, and we found that the people with the lowest muscle density uh, performed very poorly on that. So can I ask you questions? I think that, that this is actually the critical point. Is this reversible in rheumatoid arthritis? Right. So you may make attempts to reverse muscle loss, but muscle quality because of Right. You're going to get I'm right here. So potentially yes, because as opposed to some of the things we saw with the adipose tissue, where there didn't seem to be much of a relationship between inflammation now and what, what we were seeing, there did seem to be an, a relationship between inflammation now and the muscle density, because there was a, a fairly strong relationship between the um, the level of circulating IL-6 and the muscle density. Now, I don't have anything longitudinal in these patients in order to, and certainly nothing where the, in rheumatoid arthritis, inflammation goes up and down, and it's modified by treatments as well. So it's hard to control all of those circumstances to know exactly what was going on. So I don't know necessarily whether if, if you could take this person with high IL-6, treat them with any kind of RA treatment that's effective, whether their muscle density would go back to there, but it's certainly something that could be tested. We don't know that as yet. So again, um, adipose issue uh, in RA patients. Um, Just one other question, regarding the IL-6, I take it that the other inflammatory markers did not so when we measured, so we measure CRP and IL-6 in these patients. So CRP, we see the same thing. Same thing. Same thing. So do you think this is specific to IL-6? Probably not. Um, and so what we see is generally that you'll see people who have high IL-6s mm -hmm. in RA will have high TNFs, high IL-1s, you know, a lot of activated macrophages. It's part and parcel for the, for the um, elevated inflammatory state of rheumatoid arthritis. Probably not specific to IL-6. You, you seem to be vacillating a little bit as to cause and effect. So on the one hand, you said that these body composition changes precede the onset of disease, implying that it's a symptom of the disease, it's a consequence. But 
later on you're implying that this is these are actually a cause of the disease. Which do you? Which which is your? Which I'm an epidemiologist, so I I try not to infer from cross-sectional studies temporality, and I don't know. I don't know. And what we find in RA is that there there's often um, amplifying effects. So something starts out as a you know as a as a cause or as an effect, and it becomes a cause. So. Um, I don't know the answer to that, and that's something that we're trying to learn more about. Um, so a little bit about protective effects, because this is not all bad for um, adipose tissue in particular. So the hallmark of, of rheumatoid arthritis, and the thing that we're really trying to treat, we're trying to treat people's clinical symptoms, but we're really trying to treat this, and this is progression of, of um, erosive damage. So this is the same PIP joint in the same patient over a fairly short period of time. You can see a normal joint here, normal joint space, no erosive uh, changes. Here is midway, you can see a little bit of maybe some osteopenia there, a little haziness and a little bit of joint space narrowing, and then pretty soon there's this erosion and joint space narrowing, a lot of periarticular osteopenia. And if you can imagine what this looks like um, with an MRI, for example, you would see that there's a big panis of, of synovitis there. Um, and that's what we're trying to avoid. And this is really what we're trying to avoid. And all those these x-rays look old. You can see, I see RA patients who look like this every, every day. Um, so this is not ancient history. This is the reality of the disease, and that's really what we're trying to prevent. And it hasn't been all that long ago. It was recognized, it was somewhat surprising, that people who had higher BMIs actually had less of that progression of those erosions over time. So the, these are divided by BMI groups less than 25, 25 to 30, and greater than 30. This is a, a measure on the y-axis of, of progression of those erosions over time. And that people who had the highest BMIs actually had the lowest progression of those erosions. And then people who had the lowest BMIs had the greatest progression. We've seen more in the rheumatoid factor positive patients. They're the patients who are more likely to have progression anyway. And when I first saw, we had just started uh, doing some of our um, body composition studies at this time in my first saw this, I said, well, this is probably because these are the cachectic high levels of cytokine patients who, and it's really driving the high levels of cytokines are driving both the radiographic progression and, the, and their BMI. But that doesn't explain why these patients are, are protected so much. So is this retrospective or prospective? This is prospective. And we've actually seen this as well. So we saw this in our study as well. And when we looked, so we did see there's a relationship between BMI, DEXA-based <coughs> fat measures, visceral <coughs> fat, all of those are protective against erosions. We have seen and others have seen as well. And then we, when we modeled to see what were the predictors of this, actually having higher levels of adiponectin was associated with more radiographic progression. We saw that cross-sectionally, we saw it prospectively. We took 151 of these patients, followed them for three years. They had x-rays at baseline. And then at their last follow-up visit, visit, and they had three, three measures of adiponectin, what we saw was that this is another measure of, uh, of progression. We saw that people who had the highest level of average adiponectin were the folks who were more likely to progress. And that's adjusting for, for BMI and, and disease activity and uh, autoantibodies and others. And in fact, we normally think about being on a biologic and having a good clinical response as being protective against progressing uh, on your x-rays, and what we found was that that was true, provided that you had a low level of adiponectin. 
if you had high levels of adiponectin, even if you were on a biologic, it didn't seem to protect you against the erosive progression, even if you had a good clinical response. Um, so we thought that very curious. So is it, uh, maybe I'm confused. Are you saying that patients with the lowest amount of fat have the highest levels of adiponectin? We did see that. We, we generally see that. That's a, a, the same relationship as in, as in the general population as well. Um, but in, but um, maybe I should have mentioned this earlier, across a number of studies, adiponectin levels are higher in RA patients than in comparable non-RA patients, as are leptin and resistant too. So with treatment, does hydration change? I'm wondering how hydration might be influencing your results from hmm. your body composition measures. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we do see it with whether it's just looking at BMI, whether it's looking at CT, whether it's looking at DEXA. But I don't know the answer. I don't think anybody's ever looked at that. Um, so it turns out we think about adiponectin. My impression of adiponectin before we start looking at it was adiponectin is good, right? Adiponectin is anti-inflammatory. It's anti-atherosclerotic, good all around. But it turns out in the joint, it's not. So a number of studies have looked at this. Adiponectin actually induces IL-6 expression in synovial fibroblasts. It activates NF-kappa B. Um, it activates osteoclasts via um, increasing lung ligand expression. So there's something particular about what it does in the joint that appears to be um, either both pro-inflammatory or, um, or osteoclastogenic. It's also made by, um, uh, is produced by inflamed synovial tissue, probably by the synovial fibroblasts themselves. And it changes when, it may change when you treat. Um, so this gets at the issue of treatment. So there have been a number of studies. These are not randomized studies. They're just looking at patients before and after treatment um, and showing that in a lot of these studies, adiponectin increases after treatment, but some have shown no change. Some have even shown decrease, decreases. It's a, a little bit confusing. What you need here is a clinical trial in which you measure adiponectin before and after treatment, and everybody starts at the same place. Um, so we actually were able to do that um, in the setting of, a, of a, uh, one of the landmark trials uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, which was called this Treatment in Early Aggressive Rheumatoid Arthritis, so the TIER trial. These are patients who have aggressive RA that had to start out with having uh, either inflammatory, um, uh, they had to have autoantibodies or they already had to have an erosion. So these are people who are likely to progress. And they were treated with combinations of therapies or uh, biologics right at the outset. And these are patients who have very early disease. These are patients with disease for less than six months. Um, and we took the samples from the study um, and they already had radiographs in, in these uh, patients already. And we measured adiponectin, leptin, and resistant in the patients and looked to see what, uh, if any of these were related to radiographic progression. What we found was that baseline adiponectin did not predict progression. What predicted progression in these patients was how the adiponectin changed. So if your adiponectin went up, you were more likely to have uh, progression of several units uh, on the scale. If your adiponectin went down with treatment, you would have had uh, very little progression. And this was, again, independent of what treatment you got um, or your treatment response. And there was nothing that I could discern that would predict whether someone's adiponectin was going to go up with treatment or it was going to go down with treatment. 
Um, so I don't know why it went up or down with treatment, but certainly if it went up, they were more likely to have uh, uh, progression, and if it went down or stayed the same, they were less likely. Did you, did you do so we didn't have, this is, the clinical trial was already done, um, so we were able to get the samples and then use the data that was already collected. It would have been great to do that. Now there have been some studies, a very, very few studies looking at treatment responses and, um, and how body composition changes, and they haven't really been shown all that much. So in terms of quantity of fat, quantity of muscle, there doesn't seem to be much change. And in fact, um, probably fat goes up in these patients with treatment, um, and uh, it's not really clear why. Why do you say that fat goes up with treatment? If treatment's actually making them more physically functional, right. better, it's just that the small number of studies that have looked at that have actually shown that, that so, after treatment. So for that reason, I really question. But there's something maybe not quite right with the results that are being turned from the body composition measures that have been acquired. Yeah. Because the measures being acquired are not targeted to really assess what's going on. Right. Now, there was the, you probably are familiar with the study of. Um, the Bernstein study that looked at etanercept, in, sorry, etanercept and insulin resistance, not in RA, right, um, from a few years back. And they looked at body composition measures too, and they didn't see any changes. I think they saw an improvement in muscle density with etanercept, but not in the amount of muscle or the amount of fat. And patients with RA who have higher BMI actually have lower mortality. Um, this has been shown a number of times as well. So, we can understand why people with very, very low BMIs who are underweight have higher mortality in RA. But why someone who has a BMI 25 to 30 would have a higher mortality, someone with a BMI greater than 30 is not really all that clear. Uh, part of it is because of uh, RA comorbidities and RA severity, but not all of it. Um, but there certainly has been this, um, this described. So this may just be these are hardier people, and they get sick, and they can survive longer, and we don't know the answer. But, um, that this has been described in multiple cohorts. Anyway, so let's move on to um, looking at adipose inflammation, which is something that we've um, more recently. I don't have to tell you guys about this. You all know about um, adipose tissue as a source of inflammatory cytokines, and the same cytokines that we see in rheumatoid arthritis that really drive the disease are seen in, in uh, adipocity. And we've, um, we and others have shown that as would be expected, this is not a big surprise, that, um, that higher levels of adiposity uh, here uh, with BMI are associated with uh, CRP. This effect is stronger in women, so this is a, a large group of patients that includes our body composition cohort as well as other body composition cohorts. <coughs> this is NHANES. These are RA patients. Um, as expected, the RA patients have higher levels of CRP, um, and it increases with adiposity. But one association which was striking is that in men with rheumatoid arthritis, there seems to be an inverse association that's not the same as in the general population. We don't know the answer to that as of yet what that is. And if you take RA patients who are heavy and they go undergo bariatric surgery, um, CRPs go down, not surprising. Now the issue here is that, um, so we, to, in order to assess disease activity in RA patients, we use uh, a measure called the disease activity score, which is, um, which is a, a regression equation that includes um, swollen joints, tender joints, and CRP. 
So when we use CRP in rheumatoid arthritis patients, we assume that it's all coming from the inflamed synovium. Um, and we make changes on treatments based on that. We use that in clinical practice, and it's used in clinical trials in order to decide if a medication works or not. So if you um, have multiple sources of CRP, like a lot of uh, fat tissue, um, then we may be overestimating what's going on in the joints if we use the CRP. Again, this is the bariatric surgery study um, where uh, the patient's CRPs went down dramatically. Um, they didn't have disease, they didn't have swollen and tender joints, unfortunately, to see if those went down as well. Um, this is a group I don't have to tell uh, much about this. Um, obviously, um, with gain of fat, there's accumulation of macrophages and adipose tissue, um, increase in the in the production of inflammatory cytokines, which then are able to circulate um, and, and be measured. Um, and certainly, there are a number of studies have shown that if you can actually knock out NTP1, for example, you can decrease the amount of adipose tissue macrophages, knock out NTP1's receptor, you can um, change the, the amount of adipose tissue macrophages, in, uh, increase insulin sensitivity, uh, and others. And so we were interested in this concept um, of looking um, not just at the amount of fat in RA patients, but what was the quality of the fat, and in, in, in particular, it's immunophenotype. Um, so what we did was, again, another cross-sectional study where we sampled um, <coughs> subcutaneous adipose tissue, and uh, thanks to folks in the audience for teaching me how to do that. Um, and we couched that in a study um, where RA patients were coming in and having uh, a number of other assessments. They were have, we had uh, body composition assessments in these patients. We had uh, FDG PET CT in these patients to look at their uh, uh, at vascular inflammation and a lot of clinical outcomes. So we were able to, to um, put this in the context of a study where we could um, look at adipose uh, inflammation. You all know this procedure, I think. Um, we, this is a bedside procedure. Um, collected two to three grams of adipose tissue in these patients um, and have uh, assessed a number of uh, characteristics. So we performed these in 37 RA patients. 25 controls were matched on age, gender, race, ethnicity, and BMI. Um, so we wanted to make sure that anything that we were seeing in these patients was not because there was a BMI uh, difference in these patients. We did gene expression profiling for a number of things by RT-PCR. Um, thus far, we have done quantitative immunohistochemistry just for CD68, a macrophage marker, but we have plans to look at other markers. And then we've done some digital image analysis for adipose size, which is ongoing. And what we found was actually quite striking um, in that the um, RA patient's adipose tissue was different than the non-RA patient's in terms of um, inflammation. And this is just one representative. Um, slide that's so I'll show you more of the quantitative uh, things in just a bit but we found that in controls there were few CD68 cells noted it increased with um, with BMI and other measures of adiposity but in RA patients there was an abundant infiltration of CD68 cells there's a lot of these round morphology a lot of them in these crown like structures um, a lot um, there's a market variability in adipocyte size. There was seemed to be more fibrosis, but quantitatively we didn't actually see a difference in fibrosis in the, in, between the RA patients and the controls. But there were market differences in the amount of 
uh, CD68 cells in crowns, so RA patients had um, about a little less than double the number of uh, CD68 cells in their adipose tissue, um, and also more of the crown-like structures of these cells. And then when we looked at what uh, characteristics of the RA patients were associated with, here, this is the CD68 cells, we saw that they actually decreased um, with RA duration. Uh, this is our other RA autoantibody called the anti-CCP. Um, the, there were higher levels of what we presume are adipose tissue macrophages in these patients. Patients who used methotrexate or leflunamide, which are non-biologic treatments, had lower amounts of macro, uh, adipose tissue macrophages, as well as patients using TNF inhibitors, which is, uh, but not other biologics. Um, but again, this is a smaller sample, and we didn't have, most of the patients who were using biologics were using TNF inhibitors, and not randomized to those treatments either. So it's hard to, to make a definitive uh, judgment on it. And then when we looked at the crown-like structures, statin users had lower levels of crowns, which I think was kind of striking. And I don't know if that's been reported elsewhere, um, outside of this. Rheumatoid factor was associated with more crowns, as well as having high levels of CRP, which is probably not surprising as well. Then we looked at um, adipose tissue gene expression with <coughs> inflammatory cytokines. We found that there was a, a fairly consistent um, number of cytokines, um, proteases, um, and macrophage markers that were seem to be associated with systemic inflammation and disease activity. So IL-6, MCP-1, MMP-9, osteopon, C1Q, and then you know, these are CD68, uh, but also some macrophage markers that we don't normally associate with just plain old M1 polarization, associated with fairly strongly with serum CR, CRP, serum IL-6, um, this is that disease activity score, um, but not just, so these all could just be driven by levels of systemic inflammation. But we also saw uh, a relationship with a clinical symptom, which is morning stiffness, the duration of how long their joints are stiff in the morning. We saw that these same ones were associated. And when we tried to, when we tried to model the circulating CRP, we found something which was really, I think, quite striking, and there was a very, very strong relationship here between the adipose MCP1 expression and the CRP, which is probably not surprising. And then when we put all the other predictors in the model for modeling CRP, we found that adipose MCP1 was, was very strong, as well as how many swollen joints they have, their age, men had lower levels of, of CRP. BMI was still associated here, even after, uh, even after uh, putting adipose MCP1 in the model. And then biologics were associated with lower levels of CFP. And these six, six predictors um, were able to predict 63% of the explainable variability in the circulating CRP, which is a lot um, in our disease. And adipose MCP1 expression accounted for 11%, and the swollen joints only accounted for 5%. So if anything, um, it, it appears that when we're assessing CRP in these patients, there's probably just as much of it coming from the fat tissue and because of fat tissue as there is from the, from the joint. We have ongoing analyses. Um, we're doing some additional staining, probably do some T-cell markers as well. Um, we're doing the analysis of adipocyte size and a medical student is working on that with me. Um, and then we're looking at relationships between, for other 
uh, outcomes, in particular things like vascular FDG uptake. And just a very quick preliminary analysis, we saw a very strong relationship between the adipose CD68 expression and the amount of vascular inflammation in the aorta. Um, so we have a new project um, that is uh, NIAMS funded looking at pre and post treatment changes in adipose tissue. So we're taking RA patients who are, who are starting a new treatment, doing a, uh, an aspirate before they start and then four months after they start to see what the treatments, uh, how they change. In addition, because we have, we did um, FDG, full body FDG PET CTs on these patients, um, including the ones that I uh, biopsied, we had the ability to look at using FDG PET CT to non-invasively measure adipose inflammation, which is sort of in its nascent um, stages, um, but we're trying to um, sample um, some of the areas of these are regions of interest in fat tissue, and you can quantitatively look at, um, at FDG uptake, which is presumably being taken up by macrophages as a quantitative marker. Have you, are you looking at the liver also? We, have, we do have liver. And what do you find? So, we've, that, so we see that they have more steatosis. Um, what our original, that's associated with circulating inflammatory markers, not surprising. And we're mainly interested in looking at our RA treatments in relationship to that because methotrexate and lofluoride are associated with fibrosis. Um, and we actually didn't see that, 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 they, that they were associated with more fibrosis. Uh, and then biologics, in particular TNF and virtual studies, they with lower levels of steatosis. Are you seeing an association between fibrosis and uh, severity of disease? No. What about duration? And not duration either. So that's has been a, a theme throughout. So what we expected was that we would see that as as people develop, have disease longer, they have more damage in their joints and they have more accrual of, uh, of um, disease manifestations, but we haven't seen that with, uh, with any of the body composition assessments. It all seems to be everything happened at the beginning and then didn't change either kind of stayed the same throughout. Uh, just a, a couple minutes on other rheumatic diseases. So there, um, it's, this is not an RA-specific effect, although most of the study in this area has been an RA. Um, I'm also interested in a different type of inflammatory arthritis called psoriatic arthritis. It has a different mechanism, that, that completely different mechanism than rheumatoid arthritis, but also has synovitis, also has systemic inflammation, obviously has other manifestations. Psoriasis is, a, is um, one of the uh, hallmarks, but it has a different this is a different disease. And in many ways, this is the uh, is lower hanging fruit for body composition than even rheumatoid arthritis because there's been recognized for a long time that there is a clear association of both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis with, with adipose tissue. So people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis have higher BMIs, higher waist circumferences. Um, these are usually heavy people. Um, and obesity, I'll show you a little bit more of this data about obesity being associated with going from psoriasis to having psoriatic arthritis. But we don't know much about adipose distribution in patients with psoriatic arthritis. We know nothing about muscle in these patients. And then in terms of lupus, um, you know, obviously lupus is a, a completely different disease. Uh, synovitis is not a common feature of lupus, and certainly erosive synovitis is not but these patients have high levels of inflammation and a lot of autoantibodies. 
Um, and what has been found in, in studies is that um, sarcopenia is the, is the predominant abnormality and adipose tissue doesn't seem to be as, as prevalent in these patients. So a little bit about psoriatic arthritis. So, um, uh, so in one study, obesity, so having a BMI greater than 30, um, was 84% uh, higher in patients with psoriasis versus normal controls, then 171% higher in psoriatic arthritis versus normal controls. So definitely patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis are heavier. Um, and obesity is a risk factor for having incident psoriatic arthritis among people with psoriasis. Very large um, uh, study sample here um, with a relative risk for incident psoriatic arthritis higher for people who are obese versus normal weight, and then a little bit even higher for people who are super obese, so uh, BMI greater than 35 versus normal weight. They found similar findings in the nurses' help study, and in one study, each unit higher BMI at the age of 18 was associated with 6% uh, increase in incident psoriatic arthritis. Um, and adiposity appears to uh, be related to psoriatic arthritis outcomes. So overweight and obese psoriatic arthritis patients are less likely to achieve low disease activity after starting uh, a disease-modifying agent in more than one study. And then probably the most compelling study was this one, where patients who had active disease were started on a TNF inhibitor. And so everybody got the TNF inhibitor, and they were randomized to either um, uh, a intentional weight loss regimen with a low calorie diet versus doing whatever you want to do. And obviously, um, the people who were in the group that had the more aggressive intentional weight loss group lost more weight. What they found was that um, minimal disease activity after losing more than 5% of body weight was associated with a 50% likelihood of having minimal disease activity. But if you lost less than 5% of your body weight, you're much less likely to achieve minimal disease activity after starting on the TNF inhibitor. So again, very, uh, probably the most compelling evidence that overweight and obesity is associated with um, uh, weight disease activity. And then so we, we're interested in psoriatic arthritis, and so we have a current. Did, I'm sorry. Did, has that study been done without the DMR? Just with the diet? No, it has not been done. And it has not been done in our. So we, um, a while back, we wanted to, to do in a um, so transitioning back to RA, we wanted to do that study in rheumatoid arthritis to see what the risk benefit of weight loss was in, in RA patients, but that didn't get funded, unfortunately. Um, and I think it needs to be done in this, in this disease. Um, so we're looking, our current study now is looking at adipose inflammation in psoriatic arthritis patients before they go on a new treatment to see if that affects their treatment response. Um, and then uh, uh, psoriatic arthritis has a uh, strong inheritance pattern, particularly in the HLA region, uh, in, in the uh, class one HLA genes. Um, and we're looking to see if there's interaction between um, the genetic risk for psoriatic arthritis um, and adiposity to see if there's some, some interaction. Um, so those are, that's ongoing right now. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to present that at some later point to you guys. Because again, I think psoriatic arthritis is probably the low hanging fruit um, in this. And the fact that we've seen such robust um, associations in rheumatoid arthritis means that we'll probably see even bigger ones in psoriatic arthritis. That's 
all. So I want to acknowledge some people. Um, Joan Bayfon has been my mentor <coughs> for about 15 years, a long time. Um, and it's been great. Um, and, uh, and we've been able to, to build the studies where we can uh, study things together. Uh, it makes things much more efficient. Uh, Bob Winchester has done uh, a lot of the immunohistochemistry chemistry the, uh, and all of the, the lab-based um, uh, work for me. Um, it's been a great collaborator. Tony, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic as well. Um, and then the folks um, who have enrolled the patients and counted macrophages incessantly, counted uh, um, uh, the size of adipocytes have been really, very, very helpful. And actually getting patients to come in and have an adipose biopsy. And, and uh, you know, we, um, at first we thought it would be very, very challenging to get to these patients to agree to come in, but in reality, it was um, actually not so hard. We have a good time. So, um, so I think it's been, uh, it's been enlightening for the patients and enlightening for, for all of us to learn about this. So happy to answer any questions. Um, thank you. Questions? The fact that you have such a much greater ratio of women to men, what are the hormonal implications of that? We'd like to know. So, um, so we have, you know, we saw the relation that there was a different relationship between adipose distribution, between CRP and adiposity. So there's something going on. Um, we have not really gone into the hormone side um, as of yet. Um, we've talked about it, but we really haven't delved into that so much, but it seems like there must be something related. Now, the um, in terms of RA, so there's not in addition to being um, comprising more women, there's different other different gender differences as well. So it's very unusual to see a man in his 20s or 30s develop pituitary arthritis. It's usually older men, but women in their 20s or 30s are fair game to develop pituitary arthritis. So it's not just about about frequency, there are other aspects as well. Have misunderstood. Perhaps having problems with the, these two separate observations that the higher BMI simultaneously uh, means their survival and also uh, uh, faster progression. Well, so the, and that we've been very interested in that, and that's why we're trying to study cardiovascular disease, other comorbidities, body composition, all at the same time. You know, so what is, what, the thing that kills RA patients, um, so the things that RA patients die of, they die of cardiovascular disease, um, and they die of interstitial bone disease, um, and they die of infections. Um, so could there be some protective effect there? I don't know. No, but cardiovascular disease. Right, you would expect that it would, and the fact that we're seeing that more adipose inflammation is associated with. Um, you know, so the, the issue may be that, and what we're seeing is that you can have a lot of adipose inflammation, but you may not have a lot of adipose tissue in these patients. And that what we've postulated all along is that it may not be the amount of fat, it may be actually what the, what's going on inside the fat. John, with uh, so in type 1 diabetes uh, research, there are 
studies looking at family members who are not affected just to identify people who are at risk and hopefully identify factors that are mechanistically developed. Are there similar studies for RA or psoriatic Is that might be helpful in sure. trying to discern what's predictive and what's there is. So there's one group that is, that is done doing first-degree relatives of people with, um, with rheumatoid arthritis. And we've talked about integrating some of these before. It's hard to get money. Type 1 diabetes is less common than rheumatoid arthritis, right? So if you can do a type 1 diabetes, you should be able to do an RA. But their approach has been, um, what they're interested in is actually pre-disease. Right. Um, so what they want to do is capture people who have RA autoimmune features and particularly in looking at the citrullinated uh, protein antibodies and follow them over time and see who of these people develops disease and who doesn't. So that would be the perfect what setup. What percent of first-degree relatives of RA patients go on to develop RA? Because so, in type 1, it's about 6%. So that's a little bit of a moving target. <laughs> so, so, so identical twins, 50-50. Mm -hmm. Other than that, outside of that, it's much, much, much less, and it's less than 6%. Um, and what you actually see in, the, in some of the preliminary studies from the, from the first-degree relatives is that the RA patients, when you look at the specificities of the antibody response, they have a very wide array of, of epitopes that they make these antibodies to. And when you get to their first-degree relative, even if they are positive for the, for the anti-CCP antibody, when you look to see at the array of specificities, they, they make maybe one or two antibodies that have So it's not just that they have an antibody, it's just the RA patients have epitope spread much more widely than their first So that's part of this too. Um, but we have talked about um, integrating some body composition assessments into their studies as well. They use, um, they, they use health fairs to screen um, people and to get people who don't have family members who have um, these antibodies, and that's you know, an important aspect of it as well. In these, you mentioned a number of molecules like IL-6 that are made in multiple organ systems. Does, does the IL-6 expression just go up in fat? Does it go up in fat, liver, and muscle? Is it, what's, what's the... Uh... Well, we haven't, we haven't studied muscle. We'd like to study muscle. I mean, muscle is potentially a, uh, a producer of IL-6 as well. Um, it's, we haven't been able to get funding to do muscle, and that muscle is a lot harder to do. <laughs> so I would like to look at that as well. Now, looking at other organ-specific um, uh, cytokines, we haven't been able to do. Now, the one thing that we've recently sort of been able to, uh, we have folks who are able to do is actually do synovial biopsies. That's not actually widely done, um, but it's possible. What we'd like to do, but and been thinking about, is actually doing a paired fat biopsy with a synovial biopsy. There's one study that has looked at um, uh, that has looked at uh, fat, intraarticular fat, fat, which there's quite a bit, especially in the knee. Um, so patients going for knee replacement surgery get some of the Articular fat, get some of the subcutaneous fat from around the, the knee, and actually compare those. And both are have ad, adipose tissue inflammatory features. Um, 
Um, there's a lot of problems with getting people with an end-stage knee already um, uh, in terms of that's not representative of every already patient. But um, the one question has always been, so the folks who, are, uh, who do the studies looking at adiponectin and the synovium, they are convinced that the reason that adiponectin is associated with, um, with radiographic damage is that because it's just locally made. That there's nothing, no, contribu no contribution from the peripheral adipose tissue. I'm not quite so convinced because in that case, why would you see that the heaviest people would be so, um, so I think that's a combination of the of molecules made in the periphery and also locally. What is known about the lipid profile So that's a good question. So I didn't bring that up at all because it's complicated. And there's actually something called the lipid paradox in these patients, where the patients with the highest levels of inflammation actually have very, very low levels of LDL and total cholesterol, like less than 80, 75, 80. So you look at their lipid profile and you say, these patients are super people because they, they have low LDLs, but that's actually, it has been associated with the highest amount of cardiovascular disease. So these patients with this untreated, very low uh, LDL level. So it's, it gets even more com complicated when you try to relate it to what's going on in the fat tissue. Probably because of inflammation. Thank you.